This morning we uh, begin a series in an Old Testament book uh, called Esther. Now, for some of you, you may not realize that in this Old Testament book that the name of God is never mentioned. It's never mentioned in the book. Yet as you read through the book, you determine that he's the hero of the book, even though his name's never mentioned. That's an interesting book. There's no mention of uh, worship, faith. There's no prophecies of a coming Christ. There's no talk about heaven. There's no talk about hell. Uh, There's no miracles in the book. And yet through this book, all throughout it, you see the hand of God weaved in and out through just ordinary events. Now, I began to think about our lives. And probably all of us have been there at one time or another to where we just feel like that God's silent. I mean, things are going on in our life that we don't understand. Circumstances are controlling us that really we have no control. We seek for answers. We ask Him for direction. And it seems like we continue to pray and pray and yet nothing ever, ever comes. But we talk to our friends, and our friends, they sit there and they say, oh, gosh, let me just tell you what God did for me. Oh, we prayed. God was so clear. He answered this prayer. He gave me this direction, and we went right over here, and it's just amazing. Praise be to God. It was great. And yet you sit there and you say, it's been weeks. It's been months, and for some, it's been years where I've been praying, and there's no aha moment. There's no loud voice from heaven. There's no shout. There's no word from the Lord. There's no waking up in the middle of the night and getting a vision from God. There's nothing that's clear to me. It's just stone cold silence. Have you ever been there? If you have, Esther's the book for you. And we've entitled this series, Hidden, Not Hiding. Because, see, for some, when we go through these times, we believe that God is hiding from us. And that is, he's trying to get as far away from me as possible so he doesn't have to listen to my pleas. And we think that he's just trying to hide so that he can't be found, and it's just adding frustration. Listen, God's not hiding, but he's hidden. And what's happening is as you're going through these times of questioning, in the background, God is there. And he's moving pieces around according to his determination to be able to achieve his glory and for your good. So he's hidden, but he's not hiding. And then throughout this whole book of Esther, we're going to pursue this and build on this and to learn more about what does that mean. And how can God work through just ordinary events? And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Esther. Now, you're going to learn that because over the next few weeks, we're going to be working uh, in this book. It comes right after Nehemiah. Uh, If you get to the book of Psalms, take a left and start turning back, okay? And you'll find the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, what we will be looking at is, is looking at God's providence, And you see this throughout this entire book. And when you think about God's providence, that is his hand that is directing my life and the kingdoms of the world to come into what he has purposed and desired. 
When you think of providence, it is God working through the ordinary events of life to achieve his own good purpose. It's not through miraculous interventions, but through the everyday ordinary events of history. And we want to keep this in mind throughout this whole study. It's not the miraculous events. It's the ordinary events of history. You see, it is when God is hidden, not when he's hiding. There's a statement that may help you that puts it, capsulizes this whole thing. And here's the statement. God is omnipotently present even when God is conspicuously absent. Now you got two really big words there. I understand that. And we're going to take a few moments for you to write those down, okay? God is omnipotently present. means he's always there, even when God is conspicuously absent. And this is how many of us feel. But see, what we feel is we feel the conspicuously absent, and we forget that God is omnipotently present. And we're going to see this historical book of Esther And to get a greater understanding of exactly what this means, and hopefully through studying this, it's going to bring a lot of direction and give a lot of peace in each one of our lives as we get a better understanding about God. And as we travel through life, we will see that, yes, he will be at times hidden, but I got to guarantee you, he's not hiding. Now, Esther chapter 1. I want you to look in Esther chapter 1. And we will start, uh, we're going to read just portions of this, and today we're going to cover through the middle of chapter 2. So you hang on, fasten your pew belts, we're getting after it. Here we go. We start in the first verse. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This is the Persian Empire. It goes all the way from, really they say about Libya, all the way to India. So if you can picture that in your mind, he covers all of that. It's the Persian Empire. And he says, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, We're going to do a little bit of a history lesson here to set all this in perspective so you know exactly where we're coming from. Are you ready? We've put together a timeline so you can get an idea in just world history where this falls. The very first thing that I want to point out to you is found in 597. In 597 B.C., is when Babylon was coming. They were, the, they were the big empire, and they were coming to take over uh, Israel. They were taking over the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and where Jerusalem is. And as they began to go in there in 597, they took a number of people captive and sent them to Babylon. If you're familiar in the Bible with the man Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he was he and that group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those guys, they were part of that first deportation in 597 B.C. Well, then you come to 587 B.C., and in 587 B.C., that was when Jerusalem falls to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar finished it up. He sacked the city, destroyed the city, and they took more people, and they brought them back. And so now, all of a sudden, they've got all these people that are in Babylon. The victory is, has been complete. But... As was prophesied, Babylon would fall. And that's where you come to 538. And in 538 B.C., a new boy on the block raises up. 
and it's the Persians and the Medes. And all of a sudden, they come together, and they take over Babylon. And in 538 B.C., now you've got the beginning of the Persian Empire. And there was a king by the name of Cyrus. And God spoke into the mind and heart of Cyrus to encourage him to allow the people to go back to Jerusalem. The Jews who'd been deported to Babylon, he gave them the option, if you want to go home to Jerusalem, you can. Many chose to go back. Others chose to stay. And they decided to stay in Babylon while others went back, took the trip back to Jerusalem, try to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple there. Then, next thing you come up with is 490 B.C., Now, 490 B.C. is important because Persian kingdom, they're expanding. Now, all of a sudden, there's one place they don't have, and that's Greece. So what they've decided is that they want to take over Greece. And so in 490 B.C., King Darius begins to make this attack against Greece, and that is the famous battle at Marathon. And you've heard about the battle at Marathon, okay, Uh, to where he took his huge group of army, totally outnumbered all the Greeks, and he split them and sent the navy this way. He put the land troops over here, and uh, and they were they completely outnumbered the Greeks, but the Greeks came and they fought them, and through amazing strategy, they won the battle and they beat the Persians. And when they beat the Persians, they took a man by the name of Pheidippides, and he ran 26 miles, and he ran all the way from Marathon to Athens. And when he got there to Athens, he got there and he looked at the king and he says, rejoice, we have victory. And then he died. And then we have the Marathon today. And our five years ago, 2011, I ran that same course. I ran from Marathon to Athens, and I crossed the finish line. And they said, now ah, you're a little slower than Pheidippides. And my response is, but I'm still alive. So that worked out good. So we understand what it happened. And it was a crushing defeat for King Darius. Because what happened is, is as soon as he came back and says, we have victory, the army had to double time it, and they also moved from Marathon to Athens. And as the ships were coming around from the Persia to attack Athens, the warriors who'd been fighting here at Marathon, they lined up, and they were standing on the hill waiting on them. And as soon as the captain saw that, he says, man, we're toast. And they left. Huge defeat for Darius. Well, Darius dies, and his son takes over. Now, his son is the one who is in Scripture. It says Ahasuerus. That's one of his names. We know him as Xerxes, okay? And so that's where you come to 485, Xerxes. So every time you see Ahasuerus in the Bible, I'm going to read it as Xerxes. And there's a spiritual reason for that. I pronounce it better. So that's where we're going, Xerxes. And so Xerxes, all of a sudden, he becomes the Persian king. But as he becomes the Persian king, one of the things that's sticking in his craw is the fact that Greece defeated his dad, and his dad didn't like that. So he wants to go fight these guys again. So this is where you come, 483. And when you get to 483 BC, he has a six-month-long summit in Susa. That's what we just read about. He brings all the leaders and the officers from these 127 provinces, and they meet for six months, and they're doing war strategy to figure out how they're going to attack Greeks. But at the same time, he's wanting to show off all the stuff he's got, because it talks about it in there. He's showing all the riches, the splendor, the pomp, the greatness, and he just wants everyone to see it. Hey, you're in, you're in Susa. You're in the capital. For six months, that's where they hang out over here. Well, 
in the midst of that six months, you then begin to get deeper into the story, and you get to verse 7. And if you go to the next, in 483 B.C., there was a seven-day feast, and I put in uh, quotes, feast, and Queen Vashti is removed. You say, what does that mean? You got to see this. Verse 7, he says, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. It was an open bar for seven days. For seven days, he opened up a feast for the people in Susa. All of them come, and it's just a drunken orgy. I mean, it's open bar, and it says, whatever anybody wants, you pour it for them. And they said, we're never run out. We're just going to keep doing it. And they do that for seven days. How much fun is that to sit and be a part of that? Uh, for seven days, that's what all these people are doing. And when you get to the end of the seventh day, then all of a sudden, the king's getting ready to make a request. Verse 10, and on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that means he was drunk as a skunk, okay? When he was merry with wine, he commanded these seven guys, these eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So now as uh, the alcohol began to take effect, which it had for seven days, and, and uh, he ends up saying, hey, I want you to go get the queen. Tell the queen, put on the best outfit she's got because she's a real beauty, and I want to show her off to everyone, and I want her to stand here and everybody to look at the queen. And I am the king, so I command her to come. Well, a little bit of a shocking Scripture is found in verse 12. It says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Usually queens don't tell kings no. In this sense, she told no. It's amazing to read different commentaries and people begin to uh, kind of surmise, why did she not come? You know, I'm just a common sense guy. I'm thinking this poor woman has for seven days watched a bunch of drunken people make fools of themselves and be obnoxious and everything else. And at the end of that time, when she's about ready to wrap this thing up, he wants her to come and stand before all these drunken people so they can oogle her and, and say lewd things to her. Just doesn't sound like something you want to do. And you know what she said? No, ain't coming. Again, I want to be a fly on the wall when those little eunuchs are sitting there saying, hey, you got to come, and the king says, it's time for you to come. No. I'm sorry, what? No. Who's going to tell the king? Who's going to tell the king? I don't know. Hey, you really got to come. No. She says no. So then they come back to the king, and they got to tell him no. And so as soon as this happened, at the end of verse 12, it says, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Man, he's hot. He's mad. But he doesn't really know what to do. She said no. She's never said no. What do we do now? So then the king said to the wise men who knew the times. These are sort of his soothsayer guys. They knew the times. These are the go-to guys to, to figure out, kind of the, read the tea leaves and say, what are we supposed to do? And in verse 15, he says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? He says, so what does the law say? What do the bylaws say? <laughs> what, what, do the, what does the law say for the queen 
to say no to the king, what do we need to do? Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. By her telling him no, I'm not going to stand in front of a bunch of drunk people. It has affected all the people of all the provinces, 127 provinces from Libya all the way to India. And he says, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, hey, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persian media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. There's going to be a women's lib movement. There's going to be a women's lib movement that's going to raise up, and they're going to say, hey, gals, you ain't got to take this. You can just say no. And it's going to spread over all the kingdom. And every man's going to be scared because he says, you know, I asked my wife to do something. And she said, no, I ain't going to do it. Why aren't you going to do it? Queen Vashti's not going to do it. She'd tell the king, no, I can tell you, you ain't no king. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We have got anarchy all over the place. Oh, my goodness. Next thing you know, they'll run for city council. You know, so, you know, what, what, what's, going, what's going to happen? We got the seven men over here. One of them's going to want to be in that little group. So he's, oh. And, and it's interesting because when you read it really close, he always says the officials. And he talks about how the officials, the officials. It'll be the same to all the king's officials. He's one of the king's officials. So he's kind of looking out for himself, says, if you give my wife this uh, freedom, we're in big trouble over here. So then he has this suggestion, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Bottom line, she loses the crown. She loses the crown. She can no longer be queen and that's her punishment. Because you don't say no to the king. Then verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. You know, that's just what women are waiting for. They're waiting for an edict to say, respect your husband. They go, oh, okay, that's what I was waiting for. I'm waiting for a royal edict to come down to say, you've got to do everything that your man says. And it said, this advice pleased the king and the princess. And he did as it was proposed. And so what's interesting here is in verse 22, it says he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This was the king who stood before these drunken people, and he says, tell the queen to come. The queen said no. When the queen said no, his response was, what happens if this gets out? that she said no to me. And you know what the response was? Well, why don't we tell the whole province what she did? Because they have just sent out 
a notice to the entire province, and they said, the king said to come, and she didn't come. So much for keeping that a secret. But then he said, but because she didn't, she loses her crown, and so every woman should have the respect uh, of their husband. They should respect their husband and, in essence, kind of do whatever they say do. This is what they lived in. This was that empire. This was the king. And you're sitting there saying, man and woman alike getting a little bit angry over here saying, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And the other thing that you want to think about, if these men here would use their power to make wives submit to husbands or to anything that they want, what else could these guys do with this much power? Don't get ahead of me. In the story, you're going to see. And so as we come to the end of, of chapter 1, all of a sudden, everything's kind of turned upside down. We've got a queen. She's been deposed. She's moved her crown. The king has listened to these other guys. They're sending out these, these edicts. And so life has changed a little bit. But then we go back to our timeline. And as you get to chapter 2, once this is over, once the 60 days of, excuse me, the six months of planning and the big feast is over with, then all of a sudden, you've got the battle. We're going to go to Greece, and we're going to fight the folks in Greece. And so here's what happens. In 480 B.C., you get the Battle of Thermopylae. All right, how many people have, are familiar with Thermopylae in the 300? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you you've got to go read history. Um, you have got to get off social media and tweeting people and just read a history book for once, okay? Um, this is amazing. 480 B.C., 480 B.C., the Persians are coming. They're going to attack the Greeks. And as they're getting ready to attack the Greeks, there is one small pass called Thermopylae that will keep them out of getting into Athens. And 300 Spartans said, we will protect that. And there were some other troops, a few that were going to help them out with it. And for about three or four days, they held off thousands of the Persian army. It's an amazing story. And, and, and But finally, after about four days of fighting, the Persians pushed through. And as they pushed through, they ended up winning that battle. But when they pushed through, a lot of the, uh, of, of the uh, resources that were there began to move up to another place called Salamis. And when you get to Salamis, then you've got the Battle of Salamis. And what happened there was all the Persian navy, they came in and they were ready to take over Greece and Greece had a smaller navy, but because of strategy that they employed, they completely whipped those Persians. I mean, they beat them bad. And so they won this incredible victory. The Greeks won this victory and they, and they destroyed most of the Persian navy. And so that was 480 B.C., and then you come to 479, and when you come to 479 B.C., all of a sudden Xerxes returns to Susa. He got defeated by Greece. He wasn't able to do what his dad was able, what, that couldn't do. He, he wanted to try to help him. And so what happened is he then begins to search for the new queen. Four years have passed, and now it's time to take a look and see about this new queen. So in verse two, in chapter two, verses one through four, it says, after these things, when the anger of, of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai and the king's eunuch 
who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the queen, king, and he did so. What he did was they instituted a kingdom-wide beauty contest. There, some people have said there were close to 50 million people from Libya all the way over to India, 50 million people. And he said, guys, go out to all the prophecies and find the most beautiful women. You find the most beautiful women and you bring them together, narrow it down and bring them into this harem. And then as you bring them into this harem, and as you'll read a little bit later, is for one year, they get to go through a makeover. And for about six months, we've got these particular cosmetics. And this next six months, we've got another set of cosmetics. And in one year, you get them all fixed up and then you bring them into the king and one by one, and he will end up choosing which one of those will be the queen. So it pleased the king. It was a pretty sensuous plan. Uh, It was degrading. And he said, I like it. Let's go with this plan. And then all of a sudden you get introduced to two people, Mordecai and Esther in verse 5. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish of Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with with, uh, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. You remember 597 B.C.? 597 B.C., when they took the first group out, his grandparents or so were a part of that, and now all of a sudden, he's still there. So Mordecai is still there. He's a Jew. He's living here in Persia in Susa. But also something else happened. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's a Hebrew name, that is Esther, that's her Persian name, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And if you drop down, it says when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so Esther was Mordecai's cousin. And her mom and dad died at an early age And she was this Jewish orphan. And so Mordecai said, I will help raise you. And so he helped raise Esther. But look what it says about Esther. And it says the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She was a Chick-fil-A. Okay? So, So she's a cutie. Beautiful figure, lovely to look at. One of the very first Chick-fil-A's that you've ever, ever seen. So, Uh, all of a sudden, you're beginning to pick up on something. Okay, they're getting ready to put together a harem. She's beautiful. What's going to happen? Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, this is not a choice. You didn't volunteer for this. They looked out. They found you. They picked you. They brought you in. You didn't really choose whether you wanted to do this or not. But she was beautiful. They brought her in. Out of all those people, she gets narrowed down, and she is in that harem. But now you begin to see something about the qualities of Esther because it says, and the young woman pleased him, that's Haggai, the guy that was in charge, and won his favor. And so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to be the best place in the harem. So what they do, they would assign seven to work with her. So every person, I think, would probably get seven ladies. You know, one was better with eyes, someone else with rouge, and someone was your physical trainer, you know, all personal trainer, all these things. 
They had seven different that would work with you to really get you in the best shape, looking the best that you could possibly look. And so they put all these together, and he picked seven of the best to give to her because she had found favor with him. And so then it says that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Which what it means is that she did not tell anybody that she was Jewish. She never let that be known. The reason is because her cousin who raised her said, don't tell anybody. Different reasons why. Some believe there's anti-Semitism that was going on, which we pick up a little bit later on. Maybe he thought that if she said something, her chances of being queen, you know, would be diminished. But she didn't tell anyone that she was Jewish. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, you'll see later on, Mordecai's got a job there near the gates, so he's constantly checking on her, just seeing how she's doing, keeping an ear out for her. It's kind of like what any parent would do on that. So in verse 12, it says, when the turn came for each young woman to go to the king, what they would do, they take their 12 months, and after their 12 months, when it was their time to go into the king, then uh, they could take whatever they wanted to, and people would give them suggestions of what to do and, uh, and how you should look, and then they go in, they go to the king, they spend the night, they come out the next morning, and it says when they come out the next morning, they then go from the king's harem, this head guy's harem, to another guy's harem. It's just kind of like the people who've already tried and they go back over here. So you hear, here. This number gets a little bit reduced. This number begins to grow. And they're just going through each one of them to see who will be the one that will be the queen. Verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter uh, of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So she just didn't get favor with Haggai. She got of all who saw her. This is a beauty contest. She would be Miss Congeniality. Do you think? She won favor with everyone. This is a pretty strong statement for Esther. She won favor with Haggai. She's a beautiful person to look at, but she also won favor with all. That means all the other ladies in there. Now, I may be stepping out right here, but sometimes women can kind of get in these little cat fights, and uh, I know this is new to some of you, and, uh, and sometimes they don't get along real well, and, uh, and it says here that, guess what? They got along really well. She had favor with all these people. So you can see there's qualities with her, and then all of a sudden it says, and when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the 10th month, He says, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Is this a good day or what? I mean, we crowned a a queen, we cut taxes, and we gave generous gifts. This is a great day. The king's pleased. And so she wins the contest. She wins the beauty contest. And all of a sudden, she's the queen on there. You say, wow. That kind of gets us up to before we get further in the story. So, Danny, so what does all this mean for us? Well, let me give you some takeaways from this. I want to give you four takeaways. I wish I would write, you, write these down. We're going to quickly hit this. Number one, God can be silent, but he's never absent. God can be silent but he's never absent. I want you to think about Esther's life. There's got to be days 
when Esther wondered whether God was still there. She was born as an exile in a foreign country. She was an orphan. Her parents died when she was young. She's now being raised by her cousin. Years ago, people were given the opportunity to leave Susa and to go to Jerusalem. Many of those did. And those that did felt it was kind of the spiritual thing to do because, you see, Jerusalem was God's city and the land was the part of the covenant promises that God had given them. So, yes, if you've got an opportunity, go. And when she didn't, you know there have got to be some that said, you're not very spiritual for not going. But she's looking at you and saying, it's not my choice. And some of us, you know, especially in today's society, say, well, just tell her to get over there. It's 800 miles between Susa and Jerusalem. There's no cars. There's no planes. You've got to walk it. Now, some of you say, oh, okay, Susa's looking good. And, but she's there. She's stuck in Susa. She's in a city. She really didn't choose to be there, but because of choices that other people made, that's what it is. She's Jewish. She's an exile. She's from a conquered people, and she's living here in this particular country, and she's living with this criticism that she never moved back to Jerusalem. And so now her family's dead. She's stuck in this foreign land, and her question through all of this is, where is God? Where is God? And you'd say, yes, it seems that God is silent, but he's never absent. You see, he's working in the background, and he's moving pieces into the place that he determined for his glory and for her good. Let's just say she's like 21 years old. And so as a 21-year-old, as she's hitting this 21st birthday, she's looking back, and there's all these questions, and it just seems God is silent. And what's amazing is God is working in the background. He's silent, but he's not absent. Tim Keller looked at this and made a neat statement. He says, when you see one of the ten plagues in Exodus, you know that's God. And you go back and you read, and he says, one of the ten plagues, and man, God's all over that. But when King Xerxes gets drunk and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, there's God at work. Yeah, that's God doing some things. You see, God works behind the scenes. God's hand is invisible. That's often silent. But it's never absent. Number two, God unfolds his will for individual lives through ordinary events. God unfolds his will for individual lives through ordinary events. Now, Esther's story is already amazing. Out of hundreds of beautiful women, she stood out and she won the king's favor. Esther. Esther. An obscure Jewish orphan, a child of exiled, conquered people, has been exalted to the highest position that any woman could have in the entire world at that time. This was the major empire. She was the highest-ranking woman in all of that. Wow. And when she traces the events that were leading up to it, there is nothing miraculous in it, just ordinary events. Think about it. As she begins to look back over the life and, and, and walks through this, there was a feast. There's a feast, a seven-day just kind of drunken orgy feast. 
And the king gets drunk, and because the king got drunk, he then makes some stupid statement, request to the queen. He says, I've had enough of that, and she's got enough backbone to tell him no, and because she said no, all of a sudden, she's lost her crown. He goes off to fight for four years, comes back. He's like a beaten puppy because they lost their fight against the Greeks, and he's reminded we don't have a queen. Some guys come to him with this cockamamie idea of some sensual pleasure beauty pageant of bringing people from all over the province, and he agrees to do that, which is ludicrous over there. And out of all 50 million people, she is one of the people that's chosen to be a part of this harem. And then out of this group and this harem, all of a sudden she finds favor with him. And before you know it, she's got the crown and she's the queen. There's nothing miraculous in that. It's just ordinary events. But all this unfolds for a grander purpose. I just want you to understand, miraculous outcomes can come about through ordinary events. Miraculous outcomes can come about through ordinary events. Don't always feel like that the only way I can get out of this or the only way I can get this next direction in my life is through something miraculous. You know what? You may be spending most of your life just looking for some great miracle when actually what God's doing is he's in the background through ordinary events giving you some miraculous outcomes. He can't intervene with miracles. But a lot of the way God works is he just works through ordinary events. And here's the third point. God even works through imperfect decisions and actions. You need to write this one down. God even works through imperfect decisions and actions. And we don't have time to spend a whole lot to go real deep on this, but um, there are a lot of different views of Esther. When you, when you begin to really study on this. Because you see some, when they look at her life, says, you know, some of the decisions that she and Mordecai made, I don't know if I would agree with that. And what they'll do is they'll compare her to Daniel. Daniel was in exile. He got carried over into, Babel, uh, into Babylon. She is a part of an exile group. And they handle their decisions differently. Because you see, when Daniel was there, and, and he was a young guy, uh, the king and, and said, hey, we want to get you to eat the king's food. And he says, really, I can't do that because I serve God, and he's got written in the law certain diets. And what I'd like to do is stick with the diet that I believe God has given us. Let me do that and my buddies, and we'll do that for a number of weeks. And at the end of those weeks, then you come and see if we're healthier than everyone else. And sure enough, he was. And then, and then that time when, when uh, he was praying and all the time he would go and he would go outside uh, of, his, of his, let's just call it apartment, and he's on the balcony and he's praying. And, and then some people that didn't like him came up and got a king to agree that no one could pray except to the king. And he ended up saying, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to keep doing this. And then they took him and threw him in the lion's den. And when he's in the lion's den, God shut the mouths of the lions. And the next morning, he's still alive. And we look at Daniel and we say, man, that's the guy you want to be. And man, what a great stand. And I, I agree with that. But what I like so much about Esther is that she and Mordecai, they didn't make really all the best decisions. Mordecai told her, do not tell anybody that you're Jewish. That's opposite of what Daniel did. He stood for the things that God said, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Okay. So when she doesn't tell anybody she's Jewish, then for those 12 months, what is she eating? 
She's probably eating food that according to the Old Testament she's not supposed to eat, so she's given up the dietary laws. What about the Sabbath? Is she, is she honoring the Sabbath like it says in the Scripture? Probably not because she's there just with all the Persian folks there in, in the harem. And then it says, hey, you've got one shot. You get to spend a night with a king. They weren't playing checkers and they weren't playing go fishing, okay? So, so she's got that night. Is that wrong? And then all of a sudden they say, you get the crown and you get to be married to the queen. They said, you're not supposed to intermarry. The Jews were not supposed to intermarry with others because the fear that they would bring their gods in and affect them. And yet, yet she did all of this. And, 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 you know, it's just that a lot of decisions that they made, sometimes they weren't all black and white. And they made the decision of what they thought was best for them and best at that time. They weren't perfect decisions. This is why I want you to remember this. God even works through imperfect decisions and actions. And we need to understand we are all flawed. Yet our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them and through us. So I hope that as you look at the book of Esther that you realize that in order for God to do a work in your life, you don't have to be perfect. It's not like you look back and you say, Danny, two years ago, I just made a bad decision. I took a wrong course. I went a wrong direction, so everything is kind of messed up from here on out. No. God may be silent, but he's not absent. He is still working things out taking uh, the things that have done in your life, weaving this tapestry in your life and saying, yes, there's still hope for you. There's still ways that I can use you and, and to where you can be used for the grander purpose of God. And that's what we see with Esther and Mordecai. It's up in the air, right decisions, wrong decisions. Whichever, whichever camp you fall in, you all will come to the same conclusion, and that is that God used it. And through all of it, God gets the glory, and it's going to be to the good for these folks. So remember, God even works through imperfect decisions and actions. And then the last thing is this, and that is that God, ultimately, God's in control. Ultimately, God is in control. And we need to hold on to that. And what you learn from the book of Esther is that God is in control. And when things look like that they're out of control, you realize that God is in control. We're in an election season, a presidential season, where most people would say, man, I feel like we kind of got two flawed candidates over there. Each one's got, got negatives on there. What's happening? What's happening? Hey, and we're going to talk about this later on as we get closer to this. God's in control. God is sovereign. Whoever gets elected, God is in control. And so as you walk through this book of Esther, you will see over and over again just ordinary events that are happening. And as you begin to see those ordinary events, they all begin to add up, and you see God just sort of moving the pieces here, moving the pieces there, using this, using that. There's no miracles. It's just ordinary events. And as those ordinary events all come together, then all of a sudden you say, wow, I see the purposes of God. For any who have been Christ followers for any length of time, 
I'm going to step out on a limb and say, you've seen this happen in your life before. To where you look back and you said, how did I get to this incredible position? And you look back and you see how God worked things out. And you know what? Everything was not because you made some really wise decision. It's like God took that and he did a little course correction and did this and this and this. And you, you know what? That's amazing. You see, God is right there. And he says, even though you don't feel like you see me, I might be hidden, but I'm telling you, I'm not hiding. I'm back here working. You just keep trusting me. And if you do, God's glory will be achieved, and it will be for the good of you. And we've got an opportunity to share a Lord's Supper uh, today. And um, as we move into the Lord's Supper, what a beautiful picture of when God is silent but not absent. Because whenever you look at the cross to where Jesus was crucified, if you're standing there, you're asking the question, my goodness, where is God in all of this? How can he allow his son, his perfect son, to be crucified on a cross? Listen, God wasn't absent. There was silence at that time. And during those six hours as Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth, you can just think that everything's falling apart. And then when they took the body down from the cross and they place him into the empty tomb, there's tears and there's loss of hope. And you say, where is God in all of this? And guess what God's doing? God's moving everything. And he says, just hang in there. Just hang in there. Because the greatest thing you're going to see is a resurrection. But before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a cross. And man, as painful as that cross is, just want you to hang in. It's like God saying, I know what I'm doing. And then three days later, they come to, to anoint the body. And all of a sudden, the, the rock is rolled away. And they look in. And there's no one in there. And the angel says, hey, you're looking for Jesus. You're looking in the wrong spot. He has risen from the dead. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, he begins to appear to him, and he begins to talk to him, and he says, yes, I am alive. I've conquered sin. I've conquered death. Now, you go out and tell the message to others and say that salvation is here, and you can be adopted and be a part of the family of God and spend eternity with him. All of this is true. And you say, praise God. Wow. And from the disappointment and like the silence of the cross, then all of a sudden, you've got this rejoicing at the empty tomb. Well, when all that was getting ready to take place, on that Thursday night, the night that he was to be arrested, he came together with his disciples, and he had a final Passover meal with them. And in the midst of that meal, he, knowing what was getting ready to happen, them having no clue, he begins to use this time to tell them and to teach them about what was getting ready to happen. And so we want to share in this meal at this time. So I'm going to ask uh, our ushers to come. And, and if you would come, I'd like for you to uh, prepare uh, to be able to uh, have the uh, elements ready. And in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And let me just share this with you. Lord's Supper, it is for those who are Christ followers, who have made the decision to receive Christ as Savior. And it is what we do in remembrance of Christ and for what he's done for us. If you're a believer, but you're not a member of this church, that's fine. You're all a part of the family of God. We want you to partake. And in just a moment, when they pass the elements, you just take it and hold on to it, and I'll give you some further instructions. 
But for those here who say, Danny, I am not a Christian. I'm not a Christ follower. I'm here. I've visited the, the service. We're thrilled that you're here. And we want you to just listen to the message and, 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 and I want you to reflect as, as, as we go through this time. But you don't need to participate in this. And there's no problem. You just take it and just pass it on to the, pers- to the next person on there. But for us as believers, it says that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are to have a time of reflection. So take these moments and reflect about your walk with God. Reflect on your own life. Where are you? Is God silent? Hey, listen, but he's not absent. Is this a time when you feel like that, that God is hidden? And maybe God can hear, can reassure you, listen, I am not hiding. I am working things for my glory and for your good. You need to trust me. Okay? Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to share the meaning of what it means for you to go to the cross, to shed your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, for those of us who are Christ followers, use these moments to speak to our hearts individually and help us to be even closer in our walk with you so that when we walk from this place in just a few moments, that we will have said we have worshiped with God and he has spoken to my heart. He's given me some comfort. And Lord, I want to especially pray for those to where there's been silence. Will you give a word of encouragement? We thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scriptures tell us that um, on that night when they gathered for that meal, uh, that um, Two of the um, elements of the meal, Jesus uh, made a specific uh, mention of. The first one was he took the bread at the meal and he broke the bread. And as he broke it, he told them, this bread is broken for you. This represents my body. And my body will be broken for you. And that every time that you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. Scripture says as they continued through their meal, when they got near the end of the meal, uh, there was a time for them to drink from the cup. And, and uh, Jesus took that and he held it to them. And he said, uh, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. This is a new covenant, a new agreement between man and God. And he says, so take it and drink. <laughs> 